So I don't know how many of you know the name Adam Gopnik. I don't know if that's familiar to you or not. For years, I actually wasn't all that familiar with him. He's a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine. And then I read an article he did once about how geography and architecture sort of influenced the identity of a city. And I read what I think is my single most favorite sentence that I've ever read. It's just simple and elegant. I'm going to read it to you now. He wrote that high is to New York what wet is to Venice, a necessary condition that became a romantic one. Something so simple and elegant about the way he wrote that sentence. But the real reason I remember and think about who Adam Gopnik is, is because he tells a story. He tells a story about for years he was very, very close with his son Luke. They were seven, eight, nine, ten. They would watch a lot of hockey games together and they would really converse. And they had a very, very close relationship until finally, sort of one day, a kid grows up and he reached that age of 11, 12. And there was a ritual that they would happen every day, every school day in their house where Adam Gopnik works from home as a writer in his home studio. And he would hear the doorbell ring about 3, 3.30 or so when someone would arrive home. And he would go there and open the door. And he would say, you know, like the worst kind of enthusiasm you can really have for a preteen. Hey, Luke, what's up? How's your day, buddy? Huh. Slam the door to his bedroom. That's it. No more communication. Every day was the same thing. Hey, Luke, what's up, buddy? Shrug, nothing. Until one day, Adam Gopnik was sitting, writing on his computer, and he saw this little thing pop up from this software that he had never experienced before. He wondered if he had a virus or something. And it was his son IMing him, instant messaging him. Hey, Dad, what's up? And, you know, first Adam Gopnik was stunned. He said, not much, son. What's up with you? Not much. Back and forth they went. And actually, this started a communication between them where every day, the same thing. He would ask him what's up. He would come to the door, get absolutely nothing. He would go into his room, shut the door, and then his son would immediately start to IM again. And they carried on this great relationship. It was the first time they really had communicated. And Adam Goffman became so sort of, you know, conversant in online or tech speak. He learned that, you know, BRB means be right back. He learned that GTG means got to go. And he learned that LOL, of course, meant lots of love. <laughs> and so, you know, he would always say, you know, I am in with his son, LOL dad. He'd sign off all the time. And his older sister had a divorce and he would write her and he'd express all the sympathy and said, LOL, Adam. His dad had a heart attack. You know, dad, I hope you're feeling better. LOL, Adam. And on and on and on it went. LOL, you know, lots of love. Of course, that's what it means. Until one day, he was uh, waiting for a flight in a commuter lounge in LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And he was IMing with his son, Luke, again. And he was saying, you know, Luke, I hate to go away. I hate to leave you. I, you know, it's part of just what being an adult is about. And, and I do this and I travel so much so that I can really support you and I can help to support our family. And he was feeling really bad. And so he said these things and he signed up, of course, LOL, lots of love, LOL. And Luke shot back, Dad? What do you think LOL means? <laughs> and he typed in, I am lots of love. And Adam Gopnik says, in a message all in caps that appeared to come straight from NORAD, Dad, LOL means laugh out loud, not lots of love. And he responded, no, 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 it means lots of love. Dad, trust me. It means laugh out loud. And so Adam Gopnik realized he had six months of online communication that he had to go back and apologize for because people now thought that he was laughing at their divorce or laughing at their heart attack or just, you know, really not taking them seriously. Now, this is a miscommunication that actually turned out in many ways okay. Because 
what Adam Gopnik reflected on is that so many times in his relationship with his son, LOL could have mean lots of laughs, or laughing out loud, or lots of love, but that it meant the same thing between them. It had come to be a way of expressing care and love. And so this miscommunication turned out largely okay. This message series that I conclude here today is all about communication. And the touchstone of all true communication, interpersonal, spiritual, otherwise, is always listening. It is always, as I talked about last week, that invitation from the mystical poet Rumi to make all aspects of our being an ear so that we can hear what each other and what the source is trying to tell us in this moment or in any moment. The touchstone of communication is always listening. And so I called this message listening to Facebook, largely as a stand-in for all technology, but also as the new movie about Facebook says. Facebook is the social network. It is the repository of many of those hopes for connection, misbegotten, misguided, as they might be, as perhaps we heard in that older song by Kate Bush from today, or real hopes for connection, recognizing that we hope we can reach out and someone will be there. Now, we at Wellsprings use technology a lot. We don't apologize for it. We use it all the time. A Facebook account, the church, the congregation has a Facebook account. We have a really good website that you can go there and find information about anyone else who's opted in there. And, well, actually what you put there is, you know, it's what you choose to put there. I'm not going to say anything else you want to find out about other people. It's not like that. We'll get to that, unfortunately, in a second. We have, for example, the last few Novembers done what we call the month of gratitude online, 30 days of gratitude. And this year we thought, well, why not just register that? So you can actually go to 30daysofgratitude.com and you'll be taken right to our website for our online 30-day gratitude practice this November. And some of you actually know, some of you know this, but technology and Facebook in particular helped me save a life, or at least I think helped me save a life a number of years ago. It was spring in 09, I think it was April or May, and my wife and I were at the North Star, which is a club near the Art Museum in Center City, Philadelphia, we were there to see uh, Eli Paperboy Reed and the True Loves, really psyched to see this band. And I just, you know, as I often do, reached in for my Blackberry and checked it. And I saw I had a message. And it was from a friend of mine that I had not seen in over two decades. And clearly he was at some place where it was sort of an altered consciousness, clearly inebriated. And as I read it and couldn't quite believe what I was seeing, it was a suicide note. He said that he was reaching out to me, one of the last people he had had a real good connection with years ago. And I said, oh, my God. And I immediately answered him back. And he said, I don't want you to get in touch with me. I don't want that. I just wanted to say goodbye. So we left the club. And then, because of technology, an hour and a half later, we were actually able to track him down. But what made the biggest difference is that once I was able to find someone who knew him, who could get in touch with him, and once I was able to track him down via technology to get that phone number, what made the most difference was the three hours that we spent on the phone. In which, because I hadn't seen him in two decades, I couldn't tell him what had gone on in his life. All I could tell him is that there would be at least one person in this life who would be deeply, deeply saddened if he chose to end his life that night. And that would be me. Three hours just back and forth listening to each other. Hopefully, and this is what I think happened, getting him to a point where at least he sobered up a little bit. And he would have not responded in such a violent way towards himself when he wasn't even conscious of really who he was and where he was. But even though technology 
got us to the point where we could connect. It was listening that I believe helped to keep him in this life. Listening is always the key that tunes us into life's music. Technology is a challenge to that, not something that eliminates our ability to listen, but it is a challenge. Now, any new technological advance is always a challenge to how we listen, how we communicate with each other. A number of years ago, I saw a story that was about an African village in which the women for generations have been walking from that village to several miles outside of town to a well where they got water. And because they could only carry so much water in their pails every day, they had to do this five times a day. As they went back and forth and back and forth, they had developed a culture of storytelling, of getting to know each other, of relating what was going on during that day. Technological advance happened, and they were actually able to get the water piped directly from the well into the village. Very rudimentary plumbing. It changed their lives remarkably for the better. But it also changed those hours that they had every day to communicate with each other, to tell the stories of their lives. And so... As materially their lives got better and they didn't want to go back to the place without that water in their village, they recognized that they weren't listening to each other any longer. This challenge to listen, especially in the midst of technological advance, especially in a wired and a wireless world, brings to mind what Thoreau said in his own time of technological advance, in his final words, in his great invitation to intentional living, Walden. He said we must learn to keep ourselves awake, not by mechanical means, but by the infinite, infinite expectation of the dawn, which never forsakes us, even in our soundest sleep. What Thoreau was talking about and what his invitation was towards was real, honest-to-God intimacy with this universe, not divided attention, not wishing we were somewhere else, but to be right here, right now, in such a way that we are able to experience what it means to be intimately connected to that which is bigger than ourselves, and yet also welcomes us home in a way. This challenge in the technological age is very acute. There's a journal, a psychological journal called Psychopathology, and it said there may be a correlation, there may be a causation, but there's definitely a relationship between the amount of time that someone spends online and their degree in which they experience depression or anxiety. The higher the amount of time that you spend online, the greater the depressive symptoms. Now, again, they couldn't say, is there a correlation? Does one just go along with each other? Or does one actually cause the other? But they said this in particular is the one thing they noticed. The study authors believed that people who overuse the Internet are more likely to engage in sites that serve as a replacement for real-life interaction, real-life intimacy, real-life socializing. Actually, they talked about several kinds of sites in particular, gambling sites, gaming sites, pornography sites, the sites that seemed to simulate real human relationships but ultimately did not have any payoff in terms of real intimacy. It's kind of like what we heard in the song today, that deeper understanding that Kate Bush hopes she's going to get online, but ultimately she just neglects her body and she neglects the people who are right there, and she's not paying attention to being in the midst of her life and ultimately finds out it does make her more depressed and more lonely and more unhappy. Now, I have never been that bad, but I have noticed myself, especially in the last couple months when I've been preparing for this message series and this message in particular, that I will catch myself certain days 
Sometimes when I want to avoid, you know, doing work or telling myself I'm doing work where, you know, I get on Facebook and, oh, this person posted this video, this cute little squirrel. And then, oh, someone else posted some information about Lost. And I can always read about Lost, the television show. So, and I notice then, oh, wow, a couple hours have gone by and I'm hungry and wow, I haven't gone to the bathroom either. And, you know, it's just, I, I do notice this at sometimes. But let me tell you the biggest thing where I notice how I can lose myself in technology. It isn't necessarily losing track of time, but it is dividing my attention. It is this. This little wonderful angel and devil, my little Blackberry, that is both the angel here on the left shoulder and the devil over here on the right shoulder as well, too. Very much both for me. Blackberry and a lot of the smartphones, they're very ingenious. I would say almost deviously ingenious in some ways. You know, when you have a message, it blinks. Now, it doesn't blink green. At least mine doesn't, which means go green, good. It blinks red. Alarm. Pay attention. Something is imperiled. And actually, I have to be honest, it wasn't me who first noticed that. Every time, even if I wasn't planning to use it, every time this was in, you know, eyesight, I'd put it over there. Hmm? Oh, red button, better get it. It was my wife who said, you better find a further away place to put that. Because what I recognized is that even when I wasn't using it, And I saw that red light go off. I was still thinking about it. It still had me. It was still calling to me. That red light, that alarm. I had to learn, and now I do. When it is time to put this away, I put this in the other room. Because even if I'm not checking it, I'm still thinking about it. If I see that little red light go on, I am, like so many of us, completely Pavlovian. Just give me the stimulus, and you will get a response. This divided attention is particularly a challenge in the Internet age, in the wired and the wireless era. And it is in stark contrast to what all of us gather to do here at base, at bottom, at its best. Our goal here is to unify our attention, to gather the disparate shards of our life and bring ourselves back together to live with integrity, with listening, to be right here. That's what the original word religion means. Nothing to do with dogma, nothing to do with doctrine. Re ligare. Think about the ligaments in your body. Re ligare. To put together that which has been taken apart. That's what religion is at about at its base. I experienced this, this moment of re ligare being put back together most recently at our silent retreats just a couple Saturdays ago that we had here at Wellsprings. And the first few hours of silence, you know, I had to become acquainted with this monkey mind, this whirling mind, this whirling dervish is going on and on and on, this constant dialogue. And so the first few hours are just about getting to know myself again and recognizing how incredibly busy, too busy it is up in here and also in here. But after several hours, I really settled down and settled in. There's one moment when I was walking through the woods of the retreat center and I just felt whole. I felt welcomed home. I felt in the words from the recovery movement that some of you might be aware of or might know, the phrase, happy, joyous, and free. I felt in that moment completely happy, completely joyous, and completely free. And folks, for me, it was not a mistake that this was in a drawer somewhere where I had vowed to myself I was not going to look at it or look for it or look to it to give me something. I can say that, honestly, I have never felt this presence online. Now, I'm not always driven to distraction online. I don't assume you are either. The web is great for incredible tools, for incredible information gathering. But that's why we did the drama today, 
It is so easy to divide our lives, to divide our attention, to divide our families by always wanting to be somewhere else and driven to distraction. It didn't start with the Internet age, but the risks have been heightened. The risk of divided attention is that we truly do divide ourselves and we stop listening. Neurologically, we cannot multitask. We are not hardwired to multitask. Now, the irony of how I know this, all the reputable neurologists have read about this, all the people who study neuroscience, I, of course, have read all these studies online. So that irony aside, <laughs> we're not hardwired to multitask. We're just not. I had a uh, supervisor during my summer chaplaincy that I did years ago, and every meeting he was in, I mean, he was training us how to listen how to have our unified attention. Every meeting that he was in, he would bring paper and colored pencils, and he would just doodle and doodle and doodle. And perhaps because he was the position of authority and held ultimate authority over us, he was going to write our evaluations finally. We didn't push back, but he would always say, I'm listening, I'm listening. He wasn't. He had divided his attention. He was not present. He was not there. And with these things or computers or whatever your technology of choice is, the risk is heightened because these things can promise such amazing instant gratification, such amazing instant access to information. And who wants to be bored when you can have the world at your thumbs? When you can get the score that you want, when you can see the Facebook updates that you want, when you can connect in the way that you want, when you hope that someone is looking to connect with you. Who wants to risk being bored in those moments when we could be connected? But it's the same thing like we saw in the family for this morning, that if we cannot be here, we truly cannot be any place. We will be nowhere. Being here is about experiencing presence. And when we think that we can divide ourselves or even worse, divide up other people, well, the results are just uh, tragic, awful. Some of you know who this face is. Do you know that face is? Tyler Clementi, first year student at Rutgers University, who just less than a couple weeks ago decided to jump off the George Washington Bridge and end his life. He did that because his roommate decided to, motivated by hatred of gay people or not, we're not entirely sure yet, but decided that he would place a webcam surreptitiously in their room and leave the room while he knew Tyler was going to be there. And then he put it out in his Twitter feed. My roommate's getting together, making out with the dude. Check in later tonight. Tyler found out about this, and he complained to the higher-ups at the university. And then his roommate and a woman down the hall tried it again. And 18 hours later, Tyler Clementi drove his car in northern New Jersey, put his watch and his wallet on the seat next to him, and jumped off the George Washington Bridge. We don't know exactly what motivated him. He didn't leave a suicide note. This was no cry for help. This is someone so deeply in pain that he believed he had no choice but to end his life. Perhaps he had internalized that homophobia, that fear of GLBT people that is still so rampant in our society, as much progress as some of us have made. Perhaps he was not out to his family and would he felt have been ashamed 
to come out in this way. And maybe he felt that in the most intimate way he could share himself with another person, with his very body, with his sexuality. I mean, think about our bodies, the vulnerability, the pleasure, the pain we all experience with them. Think about our sexuality for a moment. How many of us have learned such incredible pleasure and trust through our bodies? And some of us have learned what it is to be violated in the worst ways with our bodies, how to have our trust abused and neglected and to have our very souls stepped on. Some of us have learned with our bodies that there is a place called heaven on earth in which love and romance can come together and we can find ourselves united with another person. Some of us have learned that the trust with which they opened their lives up was used or objectified or turned into something they were made to feel dirty or shameful about. Tyler Clementi's body was offered up as an object, an object for scorn, an object for titillation, but an object that other people were to use in the way that they wanted to. There was a commentator this week at the Huffington Post who said, sadly and sarcastically, he was not saying that Tyrell Clementi should have adopted this kind of worldview. He was not saying that, but he said, hell, you know, if only Tyrell Clementi just thought he was Tommy Lee or Pamela Anderson or Paris Hilton, this could have been Tyrell Clementi's 15 minutes of fame as well, too, of making his own sex tape and getting it out there on the Internet. But I think something very deep and something very sacred and something very real that if only Tyrell Clementi had learned to honor was bigger than any shame or any fear or anything he could have felt, but he couldn't, and that is the tragedy. But there is something deep within him that I imagine rebelled against the idea that his intimacy with another person would be turned into pornography. Maybe he wasn't out, or maybe he just felt that it was too painful. Or maybe he felt that what he wanted to share intentionally with one person became the object for countless thousands. I do not believe that online technology makes us more cruel. But what I absolutely know is that online technology magnifies our mindlessness. Online technology magnifies our cruelty. It magnifies the way in which we can mistreat one another. Because once you put it out there, it is out there. I can't imagine what it's like for those of you who are parents. And I hope you're having these intentional conversations with your kids, especially if they are like Adam Gottnick's son Luke's age. You know, we live in an age now in which, ironically, it's not so much what Orwell was talking about. He was right about omnipresence in 1984. It's just that for most of us, we don't have to fear Big Brother. We might have to fear our neighbor. We might have to fear our roommates. We might have to fear the person who is standing there at that moment who happens to capture us, catch us at our worst, and decides to make a fool of us. Because they just happen to get it and to share it. And not to care. I hope all of us have the good fortune not to be recorded when we screw up. This at the deepest level is perhaps the most, other than Tyler's own death and the reasons why, the most depressing thing about this entire tragic incident. That his roommates and the friend down the hall who decided to post the webcam and then tweet about it 
they did not even stop to think for a moment about what privacy means and the right to bodily integrity and the fact that without bodily integrity there is no true intimacy in this life. That's disgusting. It used to be, and I think it still is, and perhaps some of you have this fear. It's right up there with snakes and spiders. Uh, the fear of public speaking. You know, you say, well, I can say that to one or two people, but I can't imagine, you know, getting up and saying it in front of hundreds of people. It's almost like in the Facebook era, there's a little bit of a reversal going on, which is that some people have no problem telling the most intimate details of their lives to potentially hundreds of people and have to have that to pass on to hundreds of other people. But it would be hard to imagine them saying that same thing to just one person, looking them in the face and communicating with intimacy and vulnerability and everything that real communication requires. Real communication requires embodiment and it requires intimacy and it requires trust and it requires risk. A very um, a younger relative of mine who's incredibly bright, incredibly well-spoken, very insightful, uh, right now, he's reading Beowulf, as I think so many of us had to, if you remember that, when you had to read Beowulf. And this was his post, one of his posts the last couple of weeks, uh, Hrothgar, you asshole. <laughs> now, actually, I thought I remembered in Beowulf, Hrothgar was sort of a good guy, so I could disagree with him about his literary criticism. And it's not the, the bad word that offends me. I mean, if you've been around here for a while, you know that, you know, every once in a while, I let a little curse drop. But it's that sense that this is the most we heard about him, about how he felt about Beowulf. Hrothgar, you asshole. Come on, dude. I mean, you're more insightful than that if you wanted to say something. But that's the sense. This is what people are getting from him. And so I think, especially if you have kids and you're talking to them about how they can have a mindful online presence, is before they post anything, before they post anything. Actually, I've had these conversations with my wife. These words have left my mouth intentionally. If I was not a minister and if I didn't have responsibility to lead a spiritual community, I might put this up on the web, but I'm not going to because I imagine that people are listening. I encourage all of us, especially kids, before you put something else, try to put yourself in the place of being one of those imaginary listeners and asking yourself, how might this sound? We can't control what other people are going to think, but at least we can think that other people are thinking. And through our words, what we put out there, we people form an impression of us. And we might just ask ourselves what we're about to say to hundreds. Would we say to one, one person, and really, truly mean it? Really imagine that we are present. What's going on in youth spirit today? Back there on their wing, and they're doing part of a fall program about being a good friend about sustaining relationship and generating relationship and learning to be there with other people. And particularly this Sunday, they are focusing on the qualities of what it means to be a spiritual friend, what it means to witness truly another person's life. I don't think there is anything more important than what we can do here at Wellsprings than equipping each other and especially equipping our kids to go out there into this world to be the kind of people who are ready to savor people, not turn them to objects for amusement, not turn them into people who will be fools for our pleasure, not to make them objects, to treat them as ends in themselves 
as recognizing that sacred depth that all of our lives contain. If we can do this for ourselves and them and for each other, then I believe truly we are charging each other full with the charge of the soul because it means we can recognize the soul in ourselves and the soul in other people and in that way start that transition towards recognizing that the sacred is never far away from us. It is always here, always right now, and always a part of our lives. But if we don't shape that character in ourselves, in our kids, with us, the world will just continue to be the kind of place that it is. Mindless, often cruel. To be the kind of people who we would hope. People of undivided attention. I think in some ways is like a little line from the movie Avatar, which actually I don't really like the movie much at all. But I like this part. The Navi people, when they greet each other, they say, I see you. To say that and to communicate that and mean it. I see you. 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 That's what this entire message series has been about. Just tweaking that slightly. But to learn to say and to mean it. I am listening. I hope we all are. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit, source of being, God of our heart's deepest yearning. Let us be a listening people. May we be the kind of people that can recognize the sacred dimensions of nature, of life, of each other, of ourselves. To see that we are not raw material to be turned into whatever we want to turn it into whether for our own pleasure or to put others in pain. May we recognize the sacred dimensions of this life. May we listen to it. May we listen for it. May we listen for it so intentionally that we know that the sacred in ourselves are no longer divided. But together, we are one, we are whole, and we are here. Let us listen so that we might live. Amen.